Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Great to have you here with us uh, today, and, and welcome to our family gathering. If you're new here, my name is Jay. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, um, I get a chance to pastor and help lead this community, and uh, grateful for it. So welcome to our family gathering. We, we call it that because we're, we uh, understand that we're the family of God because of Jesus and what he's done for us, and that makes us brothers and sisters with a great heavenly dad, and so hopefully you feel like family uh, among us today. We are, uh, we're in a series that we started a few weeks ago in the book of Ephesians, and we've been calling this series This Beautiful Mess. Um, and the reason that we're doing that is because uh, Paul, what he's doing when he writes this letter to Ephesians, uh, to this group in the city of Ephesus, is that he, he's trying to communicate that even in the midst of their messy lives and the, the mess of this world, we look around us, we see a lot of brokenness and a lot of uh, dysfunction and a lot of sin and mistakes. And, and those circumstances oftentimes just weigh us down so much that we don't see uh, the beauty of what God is doing in the midst of that mess. And what he's trying to do throughout this book, is, which is Paul's kind of master class on what it means to be the church, is that he's trying to communicate to them God is doing something beautiful in the midst of all of this. You may not be able to see it, you may not be able to feel it, um, but he is doing something beautiful. And, and the beautiful thing that he's doing is he's using a people to bring about and show off the beauty of God in the midst of the world. And, and so we, we've, we've been asking the question then, what does it mean for us to be the church that believes that, that, that rests in it, that lives our lives out of this understanding that God is not just making us into a beautiful community, but showing off what He's like to a messy world. Uh, and, and so last week, if you were with us, we talked about the, the fact that God has a beautiful plan for us and for the world, that we can rest in that plan. That plan gives us hope, it gives us security, it gives us freedom. And, and today, we're going to talk about this beautiful prayer that Paul includes on the front end of the letter. Um, and we're going to be in verses tw- uh, 15 to 23. I think it starts on page 814, or it's around there, if you're going to use the Bibles that we have under the seats, or you can swipe to it in our, uh, I guess it's the version app that we're using for our, our bulletins week to week. But, but this is Paul's prayer. And, and this is what he wants for them. If you think of Paul as kind of like a spiritual dad of a community, this, what he's about to pray, is what he wants for them more than absolutely anything. It is the thing that drives him to his knees on behalf of this group that he loves so much. So we often dialogue here. I want to ask you this question. Like, if if you think about the people that you love the most and you were going to send a letter to them or write them an email or send them a text message saying, I'm praying for you, what, what's at the top of your list for the people that you love? What would be like the very number one thing that you would want for them and that you would want them to know you want for them? Health and safety. That they would know the Lord, yeah, good. Okay, that he's at the very center of everything. Their identity and what they do and how they live, yeah. Peace, yeah. The sense of, of peace and rest. Good. Prosperity, that, they, that they, things would go well for them. They would be, have, the, have the means to provide for themselves and their family. And What else? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they would be able to know that, that, that we love them, that we value them. I, I was thinking about that this week, because Wednesday was my 38th birthday, and um, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Most of you know that we planted the church when I was 30, and uh, so I can't, like, fudge the number. <laughs> Because so, somebody would start doing math and go, wait a second, he's not 34 anymore. We've been around, we've been doing this for too long. But I, I was thinking, if I were to receive a letter from the pastor who discipled me when I first came to faith, 
from the people that have been the biggest spiritual influences in my life, if I got a birthday card from them, what would I, what should I hope, what would be the thing that I would hope most of all that they would say, I'm praying for you and I'm praying for this? What would I want? What, what should I want more, more than absolutely anything else? <clears throat> and I think the answer to that is exactly what Paul prays for. And, and so this is, this is what we're going to look at, starting in verse 15. He says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which, you, which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's his prayer. What's missing? What's missing? Paul gets one shot, he's got one bullet in the chamber. And he's firing this bullet to ask for one thing on behalf of his church who he has not seen for years and he is asking for something and he leaves every other chamber empty. What's missing? (laughs) Circumstances. He never once mentions anything that they're going through. And don't fool yourself. It's not because he doesn't know. Because he's getting reports back. There are messengers coming to him and there are messengers taking his message to them. And he does this again and again and again for the church in Colossae and the church in Philippi. When he begins those letters and he begins to unfold his prayer for them, he never mentions their circumstances. So it's, it's not that he doesn't know about them and it's not because they don't have any. They're not living like super incredible lives where everyone's singing zippity doo all day and nothing's happening. Because they're under incredible persecution from the government. They're, they're suffering. They're losing their homes because of persecution. They're suffering from disease. They've got stuff to get prayers for. And Paul doesn't mention any of it. He doesn't pray for a better emperor. He doesn't pray for improvements in their health. He doesn't pray for favor from their enemies. Why? It's not because we shouldn't pray for those things. Like even when Jesus told us and modeled what it meant to pray, he included, Lord, give us today our daily what? Bread. God, provide for us. We have needs. You want to meet them. You're a good dad. So it's not that we shouldn't pray for those things, but what Paul is saying is, I've got something so much more important on my agenda for you than your circumstances. Because here's the deal. If your circumstances are going well, but you don't have this, then it it makes no difference in the world. If your circumstances are going poorly and you don't have this, then it makes no difference in the world. I'm asking for what you really need. In fact, I I think he's being so bold as to say, if you're praying for everything but this, then you've missed out on the greatest thing that God wants to give you. How's that? I don't think that's any exaggeration. You're missing out. 
as you pray for yourself, as you pray for your spouse, as you pray for your children, as you pray for your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus, as you pray for our church, and I pray that you do pray for our church and all those other things. Don't just pray for the circumstances of all those people in, all the, in, in our community. Pray this. Pray what Paul's praying. Because what is at the heart of Paul's prayer for his church? What is he saying over and above everything else that we absolutely need? He's saying, I pray that you would know the hope, the riches, and the power that are already yours in Christ. They were so costly to purchase them on your behalf. I pray that you would just get a glimpse of what's already in your bank account. Is that what's on the top of your list for the people that you love? That they would first have access to the riches of Christ and then as people who are in Christ, who've come to faith in Him, that they would be, ha- have an understanding that they can access those resources moment by moment, day by day for the rest of their lives. Do you pray that? I think if we're honest, most of us pray for and would prefer easy lives to that. We would rather have our circumstances changed so that we wouldn't need what Paul is praying for rather than have what Paul is praying for no matter what our circumstances are. Isn't that you? That's certainly me. I I want things to go well for me rather than my soul to be well as I walk through anything. But the truth is, if you live from the knowledge of what Paul is talking about that you have in Christ, then you become a new kind of person that can, can take on any circumstance, can move through any circumstance. But if you don't have those, then bad circumstances will end up ruining you. And even good circumstances, if God were to give you a good life, will leave you empty and wanting more. You'll encounter those good circumstances, and yet you'll realize that they can't give you what you thought they would give you. And so you need more, circum- more better circumstances and, more- and easier times and-, and wealth and prosperity and health and good family and all these things. And you'll need them more, and you'll need them more, and you'll need them more. And the return on all those things will diminish over time. Unless you have what Paul is talking about. Now, here's what we have to understand. He's praying this for, for Christians, for people who have come to faith in Jesus, for the church. And so before we get into what it means to have these things and how to access them, we have to know if we're in him in the first place. We have to know, are, are we in Christ? And it's good for us to ask that question from time to time. What does it mean to be a Christian, to have access to these resources? And Paul, right on the front end, gives two ways to understand whether or not we're in it. Whether or not we have access to these resources. And it comes in verse 15 and 16 when he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about what? Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your what? Your love for all God's people. I've not stopped praying for you. He's heard. They have a reputation. When Paul gets news from the church in Ephesus, the people that he knows and the people that he doesn't know, he knows that he can address them as believers, that they have this deposit that they can access because they have faith in Jesus and love for his people. That's it. They, they have those two things. And, and, I mean, if we think of our lives, we can have a reputation for a lot of things, Right? We can, we can, and we can want a reputation for a lot of things. I want to be seen as a, as a hard worker. I want to be seen as generous. I want to be seen as this or that, or kind or understanding or patient or listening. We, we want to have a reputation for all these things. Someone who has it all together. And we can want that reputation 
where we work. We can want that reputation in our neighborhood. We can want it even within our church family. But the thing that we must have a reputation for, if we're in Christ, is faith and love. Those are the evidences. Those, those are the family marks. You know, like, when you're from a certain family, like, you have, like, the family knows, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's definitely a Frank Horror. He's got that nose, you know? Or, or this person has, has their grandmother's eyes or, or so-and-so's ears. You can tell the family resemblance because of how they appear like those who have gone before them. And what Paul is saying is, if you're in Christ, then you will bear the marks of your older brother Jesus. You'll have faith in him and you'll have love for others. So I just want to talk about those two things briefly so that we understand what we're actually saying. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not just that we believe that he existed. I mean, so many people, when they think about having faith in Jesus or the world thinks about what it means to have faith, they're just like, yeah, I know he existed. He rose from the dead. He died for people's sins. I know the facts of who he was. Or we tend to think of faith as, as our religious activity. If I have faith, then I go to church. If I have faith, then I pray. If I have faith, then I try to be a good person. If I have faith, then I, I swear less and I give more. Or I try to be kind and nice to people because that's what Jesus told me I should do. That's not faith. It's not faith. Because here's what faith is. Faith is having more confidence in what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for you than you do in your own religious work for him. You can go to church and you can do all the right things from now until the, the end of your life. And at the end of your life, when you stand before Jesus, if your faith was in your religious activities, you will stand before him and he will say, I never knew you. Why? Because your faith and your confidence were in what you could do for Him rather than what He has done for you. You've been trying to impress Him when really you should be giving up on your efforts to impress Him. You've been trying to, to gain His approval when really He hung on a cross for you to die so that you would have the approval of God in His right standing before God, not in yours. Do you have that? Are you a religious person or do you have faith in Jesus? Oftentimes, it's one and not the other. And here's the, you can have faith in Jesus and it does not mean that you're a perfect person. In fact, you could have faith in Jesus and you could mess up and screw up again and again and again. But every time you do, you come to your senses and you go, I can't believe I was trusting in myself again. I have such a better resource than my own good works. I, I have such a great Savior who loves me in spite of my sin. See, someone who has faith in Jesus realizes that no amount of goodness in our own hearts could ever match what Jesus has done for us and the goodness in his heart. And all of his goodness gets transferred to, the, to us the moment we have faith in him. And it does not matter how much faith you have. It matters in whom your faith is placed. You rest in his work. Is that you? Now, it, and that, what that leads to is love for his people. Paul says, I've heard of your faith and your love. And the truth is, if you have the first one, inevitably the second one is going to bubble to the surface. It's going to lead to the second one. Why? Uh, the famous um, phrase throughout church history, and it's been attributed to different people. I think it was John Calvin. James will correct me later in the lobby if it's not. But it, <laughs> who said... We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. That if we, if we think we have faith, one of the measures of that faith is that our faith in Jesus won't just remain faith in Jesus. It will manifest itself in the way that we love people, and particularly God's people. 
our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul is doing is he's hinting at a topic that he's going to blow the doors off of later when it comes to what the church means. Because what he's going to say in the next chapter is that the church is to be a diverse family. It's a a family of of multiple races and multiple classes and multiple gender. it's, It's all peoples coming and gathering together around faith in Jesus regardless of who they are apart from Jesus. In fact, that's how the beauty of God gets shown off is in the diversity of His community who love one another even though they don't have anything in common apart from Jesus. Which means that if we're going to be part of this community and we're going to love all of these people, that one of the ways that you can know that you have faith in Jesus and not just faith in yourself is that you actively love other Christians and even those with whom you have the strongest disagreements. The people that you would never, ever hang out with if it weren't for Jesus. That's how you know. If you have faith in Him or faith in yourself. Now, why would that be a sign of faith in Jesus? Because apart from Jesus, all of us have this inclination we tend to gravitate towards the people that we agree with the most. The people that look like us. The people that sound like us. The people that get us. Right? You don't have to do any work when you're in a community of people that all think and look and sound exactly like you do because everyone just clicks. And what, Jesus, what Paul is saying is here is, The the church should be a group of people that hang together even though they look like they should be natural enemies. Yet they treat one another as family. But apart from Jesus, we don't do that. Apart from Jesus, we want to hang with the people that agree with all of us, with with everything that we think, all of our opinions. Why do you think we might want to do that? If I'm being cynical, I would say one of the reasons that we do that is because it helps us to feel superior to the groups that we disagree with. Right? When you hang out with the people that all agree with you on everything from politics to racial issues to um, I mean, how you should parent everything... Don't you, in your agreement with that group of people, start to feel like you've got it right and everyone else has it wrong? That happens to me when I'm in my clique. You you start to feel like you're justified in your positions, like you're okay and everybody else isn't okay. You want a really good example? I mean, think of politics. We talked about politics several months ago and and for, for many of you, like that sermon is still ringing in your ears and you're thinking about trying to poke holes in everything that I said on that Sunday maybe. But, but uh, I mean, think, think of, you know, just political persuasion. Because on the one hand, you have groups of people, let's, let's call them Christian liberals, and yes, they exist. And they get together and they talk about issues that are important to them. And in talking about those issues that are important to them, they begin to look down on on conservatives for their lack of passion over the issues that matter to the liberal side. They look at the other side of the aisle and they go, you guys don't care about the environment. And God put us as stewards over the environment. You you don't care about the poor. You don't care about racial reconciliation and all these different issues. How dare you not care about those things? Now flip over to the other side. And then you have people that are conservatives and they support our current government and they're fighting for, for things like pro-life, that we would value all life and that, that we would have a government that's friendly to faith and, and wants to see churches thrive and all these different things. And then that group looks down at the, they, at the other group and they scoff at the ones that are anti their agenda. What is each group doing? In their disdain for the other group, they feel justified in their own beliefs. 
I want you to see that what that means is that in both cases, their faith is is actually in their rightness and not in their righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus. The more superior they feel to the groups that don't agree with them, the less confidence they're actually placing in the one who died for their sins because all of us are unrighteous. No one has a right standing before God and no one sees the world as God sees it, including me. Which means I can't feel superior to those around me. Now, it's, just, it's not just a political issue. I mean, think of parenting. When you get together with parents who agree on the way that you parent your child, don't you feel like really good about the way that you parent? And then you encounter another mom at the playground and they don't parent anything like the way that you parent. And what do you do? Gosh, I wouldn't want to be that kid. (laughs) Somebody should talk to that mom. Doesn't she, I mean, hasn't she read the articles that I've read? Isn't she up to speed? Doesn't she know that that doesn't work? I mean, that's so two decades ago. What are we doing? We're, we're justifying ourselves through our beliefs. And this happens with races and classes. It happens with churches. Paul says, when you have real faith in Jesus, you will not need to gain your sense of worth through being superior to other people. That inclination towards trying to separate yourself over and above your peers so that you stand out, gone. It's wiped away. And and that that sense of superiority getting wiped away forever, it's going to manifest itself in you being able to cross the divisions that once held you in your silos. So that you can actually treat people with love and dignity and respect whom you have incredible disagreements with. But if they claim faith in Jesus and you claim faith in Jesus, guess what? You have more more in common with that person than anyone that you agree with. Which means you should be able to love them all the more. See, faith in Jesus leads us to love. It leads us to say to a a member of my family under God who is equally in need of grace and no better than I am and and in fact I'm probably far worse than they are to the point where you can not treat them as an enemy but do for them what families do for each other. What do families do for each other? What's the primary expression of a family? To love one another around a, a dinner table. It's to sit and eat and talk and laugh and listen. Do you have that reputation? Do others hear that about you? When they think of you, do they think of a person who holds deep, spiritual convictions who, who, for whom faith in Christ is non-negotiable and yet at the very same time someone who is so hospitable and open with their table and their home and their life that it makes it easy for others to be around them. That you regularly befriend people and have fellowship with people who are really unlike you. I love the way Michael Frost puts it in one of his books. He says, The kingdoms of the earth build fences. The kingdom of heaven builds tables. I don't think it was any accident that Jesus was born the son of a carpenter. (laughs) I don't know, in first century Judea, walls and fences were built of stone and tables were built of wood. Some of you just went, I can't, I've, I've never thought of that before. See, so because this is the gospel, Jesus alone makes us righteous 
and he gave himself for all people. And if you believe that, then he's going to make you like him. You're going to bear the family resemblance and you'll love all people, not just the ones who agree with you, not just the ones who make you feel good, not just the ones that are in the same stage of life as you. You'll want to be with all people. If I could reduce all of my thousands of prayers for our family over the last seven years since we planted Cultivate, it would be that God would make us into that. That's it. In a nutshell, if you want to know what we're aiming at and what we're hoping for, for this community of people to be, when we are in the essence of what Jesus has called us to, it is that. It is that we would have a reputation and be synonymous with deep faith in Jesus and deep love for everyone who comes into contact with us. All right, so that's if you're in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, faith showing itself through love, if that's you, and I pray that it is, then Paul says, this is my prayer for you. That you would know the riches of what you have. That you would tap into the resources of what God has given us as his people. And that's why he says in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you would know him. Deeper and deeper and deeper. In other words, he's asking that God would show himself and all that he is to his church. Now, why is that such a big deal for him? Why is, why is that among everything else like number one on his list? And Think about it this way. There's a, a, if there's a little girl who was orphaned and left in an orphanage and she's been there for the first five years of her life. She doesn't know a parent. And then one day, this woman comes into the orphanage and she picks her out among all the other kids and she sits down with her and she starts talking to her. And at the end of the conversation, the woman says to the little girl, I, I want you as my daughter. I, I want to adopt you. Now, at first, does the five-year-old girl care who this mother is? Does she, like, is she like, well, let me see your bank account. Uh, where do you come from? Like, what's our home going to be like? Do you have a slideshow presentation? I would like to see a window into your life in order to know if, if this is really the right fit for me. Because, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm getting into the right kind of relationship here. Now, she, she doesn't do anything like that. What, what does she do? She jumps into the woman's arms. Of course I'll be your daughter. I don't have a mom. I need one. You're here. You're it. I'm going home with you. And it, it kind of works that way for those of us that are in Christ. Because we, when we come to Jesus, all of us are like this little girl. We're looking for God to love us. And we're looking for forgiveness. And we're looking for help in our circumstances. In other words, we, we, we want God to meet us in our moment of need. We, we don't care what he's got in the bank account. We, we just want to know him. We, we want to have a home. We feel lost and we come to faith and we're just like, I have a dad for the first time who I can rely on and who loves me and forgives me just for who I am, who's paid my debt and ransomed me out. That's all I care about. I remember when I came to faith at 21, that's all I cared about. I couldn't believe that God loved me. And that I could feel his love for the very first time. I didn't really care about anything greater than that. I was like a little kid. I just wanted to know that I had a, a heavenly father who loved me. Now, this is what Paul is saying. That your biggest problem is not that you need something that you don't have. 
that you need to try harder or try new things or, or, or get something in addition to what's already been given to you. Here's your, your biggest issue is that you don't know who's adopted you. You don't know who you have. You don't know yet who took you home. All you do, you're looking up and going, Daddy, that's it. You have no idea who brought you home. I mean, go back to the illustration. What if this little girl went home and her new mom turned out to be one of the most powerful women on earth with incredible resources and incredible wealth and incredible connections? Would that mean anything to the little girl if the woman tried to explain it to her at five? Listen, let me tell you, okay? You're going to grow up and I'm going to make you one of the most influential people in the world. And I want to get you ready to inherit all of my wealth and status and influence. I'm going to give it all to you, little five-year-old. Are you okay with that? <laughs> yeah. Can I have milk, please? <laughs> like, what, is, what does that even mean to a five-year-old? I've had a five-year-old. And I've tried to have some of those like, top-shelf conversations with them. You know what I, what I get in response? Glazed eyes. Because they can't, they can't connect with me on that level yet. And what Paul's saying is when you put your faith in Jesus, you know even less about your Heavenly Father than this little girl does. You know nothing at all of the riches that he's, he is now made available to you as his child. So our, our biggest problem is that we don't fully know who our dad is and who we are in him. And I know I've repeated the same kind of um, theme over the last few weeks, but Paul keeps coming back to it here, so I'm going to keep coming back to it too because it's that important. So what do we, what do we have? What, what is it that we actually have? And Paul names three things. We've already talked about two of them, so we're going to highlight the third. But he says this in verse 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. The hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the power for us who believe. Now, We've, over the last couple of weeks, we've covered hope and we've covered the riches of his inheritance. I don't want to retread that ground. So if you haven't heard those messages, go back and listen to them on the podcast. But I, I want to unpack the one that Paul unpacks here, which is his, his great power. What, what is that great power? Well, look at verses 19 through 21. Paul tells us, he says, that great power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here's what he's saying. God's great power was demonstrated most clearly when he raised Jesus from the dead and when Jesus ascended to rule from heaven. Those are two ways that you know that God is powerful. Because nobody else has been able to accomplish that. Raising someone from the dead and then ascending them into heaven so that now he who was risen is ruling from his throne in heaven. Which all of that means that right now, today, Jesus has a more, is, is more powerful than any name on earth, and is actively exercising his rule. He's on the throne. The risen one, right now, is on his throne, and he is exercising power over the world. Now, if you're like me, the first question that comes to you is, where is that power? Because I don't see it. It's, it's hidden to me. Because why is the world so broken? Why is there still disease and famine and death and sickness and, and war? 
Where is it? If he's in charge, where is that charge being exercised? And here and in other places, it, it, the Bible talks about the fact that God's power is being exercised in hidden ways. It's like roots that are going out through a field that, that are just starting to pop up through the surface. Where you, you, you look at the field and, and all you see are weeds through the entire thing. But every once in a while, there's a flower. And it's popping up. Now, here's the thing. We often only live in one little tiny section of our garden. And so the only, at most, the only thing that we have eyes to see are like one daffodil. And we're like, yeah, there's one daffodil, but come on. I mean, the rest are all weeds. I don't see any power here. I don't see God's great work here happening. The reason that you don't see it is because you haven't stepped back. You, you haven't looked at the grand scape of the, of, of the whole field to see that, in fact, it's not just your little daffodil that's growing, but there's evidence of his power all over the place. I mean, I, if, if God could only give us eyes to see what he's doing, not just in Camden County, I mean, but just like back up a little bit, even in the state of New Jersey, we would be amazed. I'm going to give you one example. Uh, just within our network, the SEND network, uh, BRN, Baptist Resource Network, Pennsylvania, South Jersey, for 30 years, not a single church was planted. Do you know that? Every church that existed within that network in this area for something like 20, 30 years, we're all pre-existing that time frame. 30 years, nothing happened. I mean, there are things happening in each of those churches, and I don't discount the work of God in those things. But no new churches, or very few, were started in that time. Do you know how many have been planted since Cultivate was planted seven years ago? Emma, do you know? It's like 15 or 16 New churches in the last five years, all over the state. New communities of people radically committed to faith and love in Jesus who are affecting their neighborhoods and their communities. Did you know that? I mean, what, what would happen if you pulled out even further than that? I, I, man, if God could give us eyes to see the incredible work that he's doing in places like Africa and South America and, and China... East Asia, the, the tens of thousands of people that are coming to faith in underground churches through the influence of communities that you and I will never know about this side of heaven. It's all happening. His power is being expressed incredible ways all over the globe. Now, for what purpose? Who gets to tap into this power? And this is the thing that should blow our minds. In verse 22 and 23, God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Here's the crazy part. For the church. For, why is God ruling over the world? Why is he exercising his power in unseen ways? It's to pave the way for his church. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. And, and the word is a, it's an interesting one because it, it describes a warship at maximum capacity. In war in those days, you would send out, because you know, they didn't have things like GPS and radar and you couldn't send airplanes over the country and find out what was happening before you sent in your big warships. And so you would send small teams of people to scout things out before you. But when the time came for the fullness of your armada to, to make a beachhead in a new land and to, to make war and, and change a, a, a nation and, and to bring the influence of your country to bear on that place, you would bring in the Pleroma. 
full of soldiers, full of, of weapons, full of freight, full of passengers, full of crew. It's the full expression of what you want to do in that new place. It's coming in and it cannot be stopped. That's crazy. And not just, Paul says that we are that. We are the vehicle of God's power on earth. We, the God of the, the universe has bound himself to us so that we are the demonstration of his power. We are the way that God is going to show off his beauty and his love and his grace and generosity to the world. We are the fullness. We are his body. We're, we're his living expression of how Jesus lives and moves and has his being on earth. It's through us. And not only that, but it, Paul says here that everything has been placed under his feet already. So it's not even like we're breaking new ground in hostile territory. It means that he's already been everywhere you will go on your behalf before you get there. It's like, it's like he sent in the Air Force to, to carpet bomb the, the place with his presence so that when you show up, you just have to walk right through. I mean, as the church, there is nowhere you can go in all creation where your dad has not already staked claim to it as the king. Where he's not already ruling on your behalf before you even get there. I mean, just stretch the analogy a little bit. That's just, we often think that we're like in a little dinghy in the midst of a storm with one oar that's broken. Right? Isn't that like a good metaphor for life and you're rowing that one oar and you seem to be like going in circles and you're like, what the heck is going on? I'm not getting anywhere. <laughs> you're just spinning around going, I'm not being effective. I'm not growing. I'm not, nothing's changing. What Paul's saying is you're not in a dinghy with a broken oar. You're in a battleship and air support has already come through. Do you know, do you, I mean, do you understand the kind of power that he's talking about? I don't. <laughs> I want to, but I don't. So let's just let's pause here and just ask this question then. How would your life be different if you actually believed this? What would change about this week if you believed this to the bottom of your heart? If this were actually the truth of your experience on earth? How would this change the way that you walk into work tomorrow morning? What do you think? Confidence, yeah. My dad and king has already been here. I'm not going to step into anything that he hasn't already preordained for me. And he loves me so I can step into it with confidence. Every conversation... Every encounter, everything stacked on your desk is all for your good and his glory. What else would change? Yeah, like the, the image manipulation that we do. You know, the, the attempts to try to get people to like us or, or think well of us. Our, our reputation would take care of itself, right? It would be in somebody else's hands. So I, I don't have to worry about my reputation with other people. I can simply have faith in Jesus and love for them and God will take care of the rest. Do you know how freeing that would be for, for many of us? At our places of work, in our families? Enormous. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we're in our head, right? Because we're, we're worrying. We're chewing on stuff. We're, you know, I mean, worry is an internal response to external chaos. What are we doing when we're worrying? We're, we're trying to control the chaos through our thoughts, which never works. I mean, if we believe that our dad was really reigning from a throne and he's prepared in advance our movement in the world, Every thought that comes in, you take captive and you go, this isn't submitted to Christ, I'm going to give it back to him until it is. (laughs) Right? I'm worrying about this, I'm thinking about this, this is causing anxiety. It's not mine to worry about, it's his. I'm going to give it back to him, you take care of it. When I need to think about it, you give it back to me. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) we all have handfuls, right? Yeah. That's what it means by take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Man, such, you know how much power you would have as an individual if you just did that with one out of every 20 thoughts? <laughs> Do you know how much your life would change? If you took captive just one out of 20 <laughs> and gave it back to the king for him to exercise his power over. Do you understand the freedom and the weight that would lift off of your shoulders if you did that? Ah. Yeah. It is exhausting to have to be the one in charge. Yeah. You wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you give it all back to him. Yep. How, how would this change the way that you send your kids off to school? All the parents just went, oh. <laughs> How would it change? Yeah. <clears throat> you wouldn't worry about sending your kids off because the one you're sending them off with is so much more powerful than you are. If he's with them when they're with you and he's with them when you're not around, who do you have more confidence in, you or him? Yeah. Right. Here's my operating assumption of the Christian world. That we have far more confidence in our efforts to protect our kids from the influence of the world than we do to instill in them the power of God that overcomes that influence. Isn't that right? We create Christian bubbles around our kids where they listen to Christian music and and read Christian things and watch Christian things and and go to Christian things and have Christian friends. And here's the th- there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if our confidence is in that we can create a bubble around them so that they will not be influenced by the things of this world, we don't believe this yet. Uh, we were talking about this on, on Friday night in our Cultivate Community group. And it just, I mean, it breaks my heart and it challenges me as a dad to, to think differently about how I prepare my kids for the world. I think Matthew said it, and I love the way that he put it. He's like, I, I, want my, I don't want to raise my kids so that they're afraid of the world. I, I want to raise my kids so they realize that the world should be afraid of them. It's good, isn't it? That's why I had to give him credit for it. He's down serving our kids right now. And he's try- I'm sure he's praying that same thing for your kids. That's the, I mean, that's the kind of parent I want to be. I, w- I want my kids to know the power that they have. I don't want them to, to, to go through life in a bubble and then get out and be influenced by things that they don't know how to tackle further on down the road and then get overcome because they don't realize that they have a resource in them that can overcome every challenge that they face. I want them to know the power of of what they have in Christ and to exercise that power in the way that they live at their school and at their college and in their jobs and in their future families and the way that they lead their families and their kids when they get older. Don't you want that for your kids? 
We would if we believed this. I mean, think, think about the way this would change your day if, after you come home from a hard day and you encounter your family and your, your propensity is that you want to shut down and close off and wall in and protect yourself and not be bothered by your kids or by things going on at home. I mean, you'd move into those things asking for new strength. Wanting new hope. Wanting new power that was available to you. If you're a Christian, this power is available to you today, family. If you have this deposit, you can access it. Now here's how, right? We've got to know how. How do you get it? How do, how do you, if you have it, right, if, you, if you've got a billion dollars in the bank account, you need to know how to go and make a withdrawal on that account. And this is what Paul says. I keep asking that the God of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is the difference. The difference between living according to this power and living according to your power is a matter of your heart being enlightened. What does that mean? It means that you don't believe it yet. Because if your heart believed it, then you would have access to it. And I've heard so many Christians, and and I've believed this lie over and over again in my own walk, in my own story, where we say something along the lines of, yeah, I know that God loves me, but it doesn't seem to be enough. I know that he forgives me, but I still feel guilty. I know that he's with me, but I'm still afraid. Haven't you ever said something like that? I've read my Bible. I know John 3.16. You know, I've, I've heard those verses since I was a little girl or a little boy. I know it. Paul says, no. You don't know it. You couldn't know it because if you did know it, you... If you knew that God was with you, you wouldn't be afraid. But because you're still afraid, it shows that you don't actually know it. It's in your head, but it's not in your heart. There's so many things that we know in our head, but we haven't experienced them in our heart. And here's the way that you access it. This is what drives Paul to his knees. He says, there is only one way to access it. Do you know what it is? It's not a thing that you do, it's a person you ask. I have no ability to access a billion dollars in my bank account if I don't go to the teller to ask for it. I can't just conjure it up, I can't break into the vault. (laughs) There's nothing I can do except go to the one who has access to it and ask them to access it for me. And Paul is saying, you have that one. You have the one who can drive that knowledge down the two feet from your head into your heart. It's the Holy Spirit. And you, if you're in Christ, you have Him. He's the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And He can make this real to you. He can make it so real that you do believe it in your heart. So please don't walk away from this going, well, I guess i got to try harder, or I guess maybe God is wanting me to get my act together. No, you can't make a bit of difference apart from Him. You can't do anything more for yourself than Paul can do for the church that he's praying for. And that's why he's on his knees. Because he understands that the Holy Spirit can and does that he can take something that you don't know about and he can make it so that you taste and see that it's good for you. That's, so this is our, if you want to challenge this week, pray this prayer. Pray it every day and pray it moment by moment. Pray it over and over again. Pray it with your spouse. Pray it with your children. Pray it before every transition point in your day from your home to your car, from your car to, to work, from work to lunch, from lunch to work, from work to car, car to home. Every transition point, same prayer. Spirit, you are full of wisdom and revelation. Give me eyes to see your power. 
I don't want to live with fear. I want to know it. Come and show me because I've been missing out on you. A whole bunch of you in the room when I just said that had this question. What if he doesn't answer it? What if I pray that prayer and he doesn't answer it? What if he does? <laughs> what if he does? What if, he, what if you pray it 20 times and he answers it one time? <laughs> Didn't that just blow the doors off your day? What if he does, family? This is why one of our habits as a church, we talked about this last fall, is time with the Spirit. It's, it's asking the Spirit this very question. Show me. And, and I'm convinced that if we were a community that did that all the time, if we learned the habit of asking the Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation to show us the power we have in Christ, we would have a reputation of faith and love. We would have the reputation that the church in Ephesus had. If you're his church, then you're his body. And Jesus wants nothing more to, than to fill everything in every way this week. And he wants to do it in you. Let's believe it. And let's ask. Father, we thank you. that though you care about our circumstances, you care about every detail of our lives. Nothing is unimportant to you. And yet the thing that's most important, the thing that's highest on your agenda is that you would come and you would fill everything in every way, every crack and every crevice of our day and our life and our relationships with your power and with your presence. Or we believe, help us in our unbelief. Help us believe all the more what we already have. And help us to know it to the bottom of our hearts. <laughs>